0: Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as Pastor Randy takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 1 of Revelation, where we will learn to submit ourselves as God's servants to clearly understand His Word and to hear Him speak. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word.
1: Let's go to Revelation and Chapter 1. We are beginning this study this morning, and uh, I am excited about this. And uh, if you guys were not with us 12 years ago, I guess it was, maybe longer than that. Uh, when I, Well, it definitely was longer than that, and it was probably 14 years because it took me almost two and a half years to go through this book. I, like I said last week, I don't think it'll take us that long this time, but then again, we're only going to do four verses this morning, so who knows where it's all going to go. Praise the Lord. But it's an exciting book, and uh, I, I pray you know, that I have as a pastor and a teacher that I have matured um, since I taught this book last, and it 's interesting as i 've gone back over my notes from last time, it was kind of like seriously, I talked about that you know not that there was anything wrong that was taught, but there was so much in that as I looked at my notes that was just kind of for me and not necessarily for you guys, and some things that may not have really made a difference on where this book goes and the one thing I really want to come through in this is what this book is saying, not what what i 'm saying I want what this what God has given to us in this book to speak to your hearts and so that's my prayer. And I hope that however long it takes us, that you'll be joining me in prayer for this, uh, that this would happen because this is, as we'll discover this morning, the one book of scripture that promises a blessing to us. And so I don't want to detract from that blessing in any way. And I want you to be a blessed people. I want you to come to know the Lord's heart. And I believe it is expressed in this book, though many people are fearful of this book for a lot of different reasons, mostly because people say, I just can't understand this. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning, because I think by the time we get finished, you're going to say this book was not nearly as difficult to understand as I thought it was. I think you're also going to say that this was a book that held more practical implications for my life now than I ever imagined was contained in its pages. And so as we come to it this morning, let's come to it with an open heart. Let's begin reading this morning in verse 1. We'll read this to give us some context, and then we'll pick up in verse 1 in the teaching. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, John to the seven churches which are in Asia grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood can I repeat that again? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And here's the part I like and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The revelation Of Jesus Christ, verse 1 tells us, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Interesting. Interesting. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Many people mistakenly refer to this book of Scripture as the revelation of John the Apostle. In fact, some translations of Bibles have it listed that way. Some commentaries reinforce it by listing it as the revelation of St. John the Apostle. But this is not the revelation of the Apostle. It's not the revelation of John. It's the revelation of who? Jesus. And that's essential for us to understand as we begin this study of this book, that we realize what's contained in these pages is not the revelation of any man, But it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God himself. And it's a revelation that's been given to him by the Father alone. It's Jesus' revelation in a number of ways. First of all, it's Jesus' revelation in the sense that it belongs to him. It belongs to him, and and he is the one who is doing the revealing to us. The Father gave the revelation to Jesus, who then gave the revelation that he was given by the Father to John, who in turn is giving it to us, but it all goes back to Jesus Christ. He alone is the revealer of the truths that are contained in this book of Scripture. Secondly, it's also his revelation in the sense that he is the one who's being revealed in the pages of this book. He's the one who's being revealed, despite all of the spectacular array of events that we're going to study, these supernatural things that that God says will be taking place in our world, the, the coming of different events, the judgments that will befall this earth, the rise of Antichrist, and then later the establishment of Christ's kingdom on this earth, and eventually the new heavens and new earth that are described in this, despite all of these things, Jesus himself will ultimately be the real focus, and everything that's taking place that's described to us in this book is all revolving around him. It's the revelation of how he, Jesus, will finish his work in this world as he brings everything to its final and perfect conclusion. It is a perfect conclusion that Jesus is about to bring. Now, here's the question. Why is this an important distinction for us to make right up front? Well, because the church is inundated, I think, with all kinds of, of books and materials that deal with end-time events. And, and they're, they're writings and they're the speculations of men. Uh, and and I'm not saying they're wrong, but I mean, think about it. There's, there's tons of things that you can read, tons of things that you can study, tons of things that you can watch and listen to, but, but predominantly they are the speculations of men, and, and as such, it's not the Word of God Himself. And, and, and a few years ago, you know, I think back to when I first came to Christ, I accepted Christ in 1975, and the big book on the market at that time was The Late Great Planet Earth by, by Hal Lindsay. and Hal's written a number of books, some of them good, some of them are questionable from my perspective on some things he discusses. It doesn't make him a bad writer, it just means he's a man, and he's giving his speculations, but his books were out there. And then it was the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, that book and, and film series, and now it's books by guys like Jonathan Khan and and others speculating on events taking place in our world and where it's going to fit into the unfolding of prophecy. And, And tomorrow, should the Lord delay, it's going to be others. It's going to be others because the bookshelves are filled with them in many cases, all with the intent of revealing, helping us understand what's happening prophetically. And again, it's not that I think that all of these things are wrong. Some of them are. Some of them is just bad theology right from the start. But, you know, it's not that they are all bad theology. It's not that they're all unhelpful. They can be very helpful to us. But whether they're good or whether they're bad, a lot of Christians, I think, today are placing more emphasis on these resources written by men than they are placing the emphasis on the accurate and authoritative book of Scripture that defines what God has said to us. This book, for example, that we're studying now, because this is the literal Word of God. Those things are not, and we can't confuse the two. And sometimes I think what we do is we subtly mistake and, and, and we come to see these materials, these books, these resources as being on par with this divinely written book, which God has given to us, but they're not on par with it. They're not on par with it, and and, and it's a mistake to see it that way. This is nothing, this is not, but the books, I should have a book in my hand up here, but those books are nothing more than man's perspective on things, and it's essential that we realize that there's only one true authoritative source that gives us the accurate understanding of the prophetic future. It's only the revelation of Jesus Christ that, that's perfectly and, and, and written and, and perfectly reveals God's plans to us because it is only the resource that he has given to us as his people that comes from his own mouth. And as such, it needs to be our primary source of prophetic revelation, not these other things. In fact, we should be evaluating these other things against this word that God has given to us and not the other way around. So here's my admonition to you. Enjoy the other stuff. Enjoy the other stuff. There's a lot of great reading out there, but keep the other stuff in perspective and make the book of Revelation your, your foundation for understanding the prophetic future. Everything you need to know is contained in the pages of this particular book of Scripture. Everything you need to know, not everything that you want to know, you know, and that's sometimes the problem for us and why we go to the speculations of men, because there are things we want to know, things and ideas we want to have a clear picture of how it's all going to unfold. You know what? God has given us everything that we need to know, and and He'll reveal more as time goes by, but even when it's fully revealed until we stand in His presence, we're not going to fully appreciate or understand everything that He's been doing, but He's giving us everything we need to know in this book of Scripture, and it needs to be our primary reference against which all of these other sources of revelation are measured. Now, one other thing I want to caution you on, and people say it all the time, I used to do it too, this is not the book of Revelations. with an S on the end. It is the book of Revelation, okay? I'm sorry, I don't pick at little linguistic things, but I am a nitpick on this one because it's exactly as it's given. It is the book of Revelation. And so keep that in mind. But even the word revelation, I want you to think about this for a minute. Even the, the word itself, revelation, communicates something to us that's very important. What it communicates to us is God's desire to give us the understanding that we need about these things that have to do with the future. It's It, it communicates it, and here's why. The word revelation actually comes from a Greek word that we would derive our English word apocalypse from. I can never say the Greek word, but apocalypsis, I believe it's pronounced. But that's the word from which revelation is derived. We derive our English word apocalypse from that. Now when we hear the word apocalypse, what comes to mind? Really dark and foreboding things, right? But the actual meaning of the word in the Greek isn't as dark as we perceive it when we look at an English translation of it, because all it means in the Greek is simply the revealing or the unveiling. The revealing of the unveiling. And that's exactly what this book is about. That's exactly what the book of Revelation is about. It is about revealing and unveiling God's final plans for this planet and for humankind. It is the culmination of his plan of redemption, yet it deals with judgment. But judgment still must befall this world, but it still ultimately has to do with the end of his plan of redemption for us and for the planet and for all that God wants to do. And so it is about revealing and unveiling those things. It's a book that he's given to us to reveal and unveil everything that he, wants to, that he wants us to know, everything that you and I need to know about the completion of his plan for human history in regard to both judgment and redemption. And this book, if you think about it, is kind of like a door. It's kind of like a door that he wants to open for us so that we can look in and we can see all that he has planned. Now, this is a different perspective than a lot of people have when they think of the book of Revelation. A lot of people come to view this book as deeply mysterious and hard to understand and, and a portion of Scripture that if we can avoid it, maybe we're better off just kind of doing that because who can get it? But we've actually, you know, come to see it in the reverse of what it's intended to be. When we have that perspective, we have a reverse perspective than what it's intended to be. Because while we see this book is designed to keep us in the dark, God gave it to us to get us out of the dark and to open our understanding of the future. Here in the very first verse, he he communicates that to us through the word that he uses to title it revelation, to make this clear to us, telling us not about concealing things from us, but it's about revealing things to us. It's not about covering things, but it's about uncovering or unveiling things so we can grasp what we need to know. And if you want to know what God has in store for you, If you want to know what God has in store for your friends, if you want to know what God has in store for this world in which we live, live, then this is the book to read and study because the answers are found here. And and God wants to reveal these things to you. It's his heart to reveal these things to you. Boy, I have to tell you honestly, in light of the terrible circumstances in Pittsburgh yesterday, boy, I just want to understand more of where God's going, don't you? I mean, it's tragic, but we don't only see it in Pittsburgh. It was Las Vegas a year ago, right? And then it was, it was Florida, and it's been on and on. And it seems like evil is just growing in the hearts of men at such a rapid pace. And, and, and I'm sure like you, you know, I, it discourages me when I see that and I wonder, man, what is this world coming to? Well, God answers that question for us, I believe, very clearly in this book. You know, and, and unfortunately, because people don't study this book, they, they create all kinds of theologies that have this idea that somehow man is basically good and man's going to create a better world and somehow God's going to work through men to make things better in this world. But we see the opposite happening out there. You know what I want? I want to correct biblical understanding of what it is God is doing. I want to correct biblical understanding of man's inherent nature, of who he is, you know, the fallen state that he's there, you know, so that we can understand what it is God's doing. Now now you and I as fallen creatures, you know, we see the miraculous work that God is able to do in the heart of a man because he's changed our hearts, hasn't he? He's changed us and we're not who we once were. So we know that God can work. But what about the evil around us? What about the stuff we see going on in the intrigues within governments? and nations, and all of these things? Well, better than any book, I think those questions get answered in here. So God's not trying to hide anything. He's trying to get us to understand it, but he also wants us to understand it from his perspective and not ours. Amen? So then he says also in that verse, look again at verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So in this first verse, not only are we told who, who, who owns this revelation, but in this first verse, he also tells us who this revelation is intended for. Now, you'll note that he doesn't bring John up yet. In fact, he jumps past John to the ultimate audience that he intends this for. This was not just a private revelation for John to have. John was given it by Jesus so that ultimately, as he says right up front, and I like this, bottom line up front, when I was in the army, I was taught that in my schools, bottom line up front, don't, don't wish around getting to your ultimate point. And he gives us the bottom line. The bottom line is that he intends this letter to be for his servants. Here is truth, though. If you want to understand this seemingly mysterious and and cryptic, what people would say is a cryptic book, I say that with quotations around it because I don't see it quite that way. But if you want to understand and, and, and see these things that are in here... I think he's telling us how that is possible. You have to be a servant. You have to be his servant. The, the word in the in the Greek is the word "doulos" for servant, and it's it's rich in meaning. It's it's a word that literally means bond slave or bond servant. And we've talked about that before. It's the same word that the Apostle Paul and the other New Testament writers use in regard to their relationship with Jesus Christ. We heard it a lot. In fact, when we were in Philippians, it, he Paul opened with that, and I talked some about that. But Paul constantly was. Say Paul, a bondservant bond servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, Duos in the Greek, and it's the same word being used here. Now, again, just as a refresher, what is a bond servant or a bond slave? Well, Exodus 21, you can read it on your own, but Exodus 21 gives a provision in the law, in the Old Testament law, where a slave who is a slave to a master, when he served for six years, he was set free. However... He was permitted, if he chose, if he or she chose, to remain a slave. But if they did so, they did so voluntarily. They would go to their master, and there could be a lot of reasons. It may be that their family was still slaves. They were still there. Maybe he liked serving his master, and he just wanted to stay with that master. He then had the opportunity to go to the master and to say, I would like to voluntarily make myself your slave. And then the, the master would take him. And he would take him to what it said was to the door, and he'd take an awl, which is just kind of a pointy device, and he would pierce his ear and put a ring in the ear, which would then identify him as a voluntary, and again, remember, this was a willful act. He wasn't being forced to do this. It was a voluntary act that he would undertake with his master, but that ring would identify in his ear, would identify that he has just made himself a slave, and not a slave temporarily, but now a slave permanently. And he would serve that master for the rest of his life. And as we look at that, what a beautiful picture it is of Jesus. Because ultimately he became one of the greatest bond slaves in Scripture, right? He came to serve us, but really, he made himself a bond slave to whom, to the Father who sent him to do the work of redemption. And like the bond slave, Jesus was taken to the wood, right? In the case of the bond servant in the Old Testament, it was the wood door, but in Jesus' case, it was the wood of the cross, and there he was pierced, not his ear, but his hands and his feet were pierced for us. And he made himself a slave. He made himself a bond slave, but the picture is even greater because it depicts for us what we're to willingly make ourselves to Jesus, what we're to willingly make ourselves to Jesus. We aren't called just to be his followers. The ideals of scripture that we would all come to this place where we would in in our lives make ourselves his bond slaves, that we would allow ourselves to voluntarily become his slaves, not just for a day, you know, but for a lifetime, for a lifetime. Now, Maybe that's why so many of the people who read the book of Revelation have a hard time understanding what it says. And there's lots of other reasons, but it's certainly one worth considering because even though there are a lot of followers of Jesus in the body of Christ, there are many who really have never made themselves the doulosis of God. They've never made themselves his bond slaves. And here he clearly tells us that it is to his douloses, it is to his bond servants that he promises revelation and understanding. It is to his servants that this book is being given so that they can understand the things to come. So if you have a hard time with this book, maybe you need to, to go to start one and take a look at whether or not you've really made yourself a bond slave of Christ. If you've made yourself that, remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 that we have a choice to make in this life. We have a choice before us, telling us that we can choose between two masters. He says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he adds this, he says, and and you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, Jesus, of course, is talking about material things. You know, Mammon was the god of material wealth. But really, what, what we serve when we serve Mammon is what? We're serving ourselves. And Jesus is saying, here's the contrast. You can either serve God or you can serve yourself. I believe there are many people in the body of Christ today who are serving themselves. They're following Jesus, but they're serving themselves. They're not serving him. So we must choose, Jesus said, we must choose to serve the things that appe- please our flesh, that, that appeal to our flesh, mammon, material wealth, materialistic things, fleshly pleasures, or... Secondly, we must choose to serve God. But Jesus says we can't serve both. We can't do it. We can't serve ourselves and we can't serve God at the same time because it doesn't work when we try to do this. It just creates this watered-down form of spirituality, this watered-down form of Christianity. Now, when he uses the word serve in that verse here in Matthew 6, 24, that same word that he's using is, is the verb form of this same word, doulos. It literally means those who become slaves to some base power who yield to or give themselves up to someone or something. That's what he's saying when he says, you can't serve mammon, you can't serve these things. He's saying that you're making your slave to something base. And quite literally, the implication is that of bringing oneself into complete subjection to that thing that you're serving. Now, in contrast, the word that he uses for master in that verse is the Greek word kurios. And kurios is a word that denotes complete ownership complete ownership. So when Jesus says that we can't serve two masters, he's literally saying that we can't be a slave to or yield ourselves in subjection to two different owners, because the one that we yield ourselves is the one we're going to end up being in submission to. Now, I think it's a truly powerful statement when you think about it. It's a truly powerful statement that Jesus is making, but to understand the full implications, you now also have to understand the cultural implications of slavery in the ancient world. The slave in the ancient world wasn't a person, but they were a thing. They were a thing. They, he or she, they had no rights. He, his or her master owned and possessed them completely just as they possessed any other material thing. And as such, they could do whatever they liked with them. And they were nothing more than living property, a living possession, a living tool to be used by their masters for his or her purposes. A slave in that world had had no time that belonged to him or her. Their, their time belonged to their master. Every moment of their, every day of every moment of their life belonged to their master. And, and, and he or she was always at his master's disposal to do as he commanded 24-7. And Jesus is saying here in this verse in Matthew that this is to be our relationship with God if we choose to serve him. He, to be our master, our curios, and we're to serve him not as an ordinary slave, but as a slave, as a doulos, as a bond servant, as a bond slave, as a slave by choice, would serve his or her master. We're to make ourselves Jesus's property completely. We're to make ourselves. His property unreservedly in that relationship as his bond slaves, we're to exist only to serve his purposes, no rights of our own, just living tools in the hands to in his hands to be used as he sees fit, living every moment of our lives just for him, just for him living our time you know every ounce of our time 24 7 is given to him that we're available to him as he would call us no time being set aside for ourselves because we're just slaves now now please understand what i'm saying here i'm not saying that there isn't time that he will give back to you for you to use as you see fit i praise the lord for the time he gives me in the day to play my playstation football games I love playing my PlayStation football games until the computer cheats and tries to beat me, and then I just change the settings, and it works great. You get it. But what I'm saying is, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, this is not a message like some give that say, look, every second of your day must be on thoughts on Jesus. No, but what I am saying is the idea of a bond slave is that every second of your day, you're available to Jesus.